let's talk about it since you brought it up. What I like about you. Okay. The song has had 128 million plays on Spotify and still counting. It is obviously a huge song in your career. I think it is the lyrically most important use of the word hey in any rock and roll song. <laughs> but to hear you, you say you were referencing other things with that hey. Well, yeah, because when I wrote it, I, mean, I came in with it and brought it to the rehearsal studio and the drummer was there and I got there early and I never got there early. My mom had to drop me. I didn't have a car at the time. The band was in its second year, I think. And you're still in Detroit? You're in Detroit. Your mom's dropping you off in your car. Yep, yep. My car was gone, gone. I forget what happened. But uh, I got dropped off. I got there early. The other two guys weren't there yet, Wally and Rich. And then me and Jimmy were there, and I showed them this idea to set the mood. We always had our uh, old storefronts, old storefronts. They might have been a hairdresser in the 50s, or they might have been a tool shop. And they were like usually not more than 20 feet wide and 50 feet long. So everyone would put foam up and egg cartons up and you close the door and you're in there all, all night and you're there all, we were, I was there the whole year, you know, go there every night and we, we jam and play and write songs and we were into writing, creating other bands would use it to put songs together for a ship for, to, uh, to play bars, whatever. It was all dark. You walk in, it's all black, a couch on one end, the drums and amps stretched out with lights up. We had it. So it looks like a stage. You know, so we actually felt like we were creating a show and that's what we were doing. We had a little space before that was a barbershop and it was all mirrors so we could play and look at the mirrors and see how we were doing. That was earlier. What I like about you was created in this one space, long space, the lights were on. I come in, the spotlights are down, Jimmy's in there. I told him, I got this idea. He got on drums and I played the idea and he started just, you know, when you write a song, sometimes it's mumbo jumbo. Go out, you're just singing rhythms with your voice. And that's what he did. And he started, you know, he's throwing words in here and there. So he was coming up with a, a verse. And everyone in the band at the time, Romantics, everyone sang lead vocal. I sang a couple, three songs in the set, three, four songs. Wally, Rich, Jimmy, we all sang songs. So it wasn't like, you're the lead singer, you're the only guy. You're the lead singer, Jimmy. You know, it was it was a, a, a full-on thing. We wanted it to be interesting live, so so we all did it, yeah. I always loved the three-chord song, Gloria, all the Van Morrison stuff, close to three-chord three songs. Like you said, Mitch Ryder, he did those simple songs. Little Lant and Loopy Lou had the haze, and uh, out, you know, over under sideways down from the Yardbirds. Hey, bam, ba da yum ba da yum ba da 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 hey, da 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 So it was just in the back of my head, and I go, what about it? I started doing haze. In a, in a park, boom, da, 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 hey, somewhere. And we actually did it in. Uh-huh. I came up, hey, uh-huh. Just, I'm just jamming and Jimmy's singing, you know? And no other words. That's the whole words that you're working with at this point. You got the melody and you got the hey and the uh-huh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so far. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And the beat, that's the whole thing. It's the chords, the guitar chords, my, my simple backbeat, the way I strum. Because of the drum thing, when I first started out, I, I, my first song I learned on drums was probably a Mitch Ryder song. Because I had, that's the only 45 I had was. Uh, Devil with a Blue Dress? or That's right. No, Jenny, take a ride. Jenny, 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 Jenny take, yeah, yep. take a ride with me. Yeah. So I learned that. On, I was just messing around with it. 
on pans or whatever, the floor. I had a snare drum. I joined the Boy Scouts because they had drums. I wanted drums to play. And I was in there for a month and I got a snare drum and I brought it home and messed around with that. And then they wanted it back. So I gave it back and I quit the Boy Scouts. I went on one camp out, I think. And they didn't let you bring your snare drum on the camp outs. <laughs> that was the end of that, huh? Well, it was about music. So right then you're talking, I was 13, 13. That was probably just before I thought about guitar. That was, I wasn't even thinking guitar. Anyway, so yeah, so that song just kind of happened. It, it fell out of Jimmy, it fell out of me. And actually up until he recorded, we recorded it three years later, got signed three years later. We were on the road for three years and uh, back and forth to, forth to New York. He was still singing two verses that were mumbo jumbo. He was jamming. So, you know, he, he probably had a set thing, but he'd, he'd go up, well, look at that girl in the corner. He'd sing that, you know, she's wearing a mini dress. She's dancing like this. She's moving like that, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, he finished it off. You just kind of worked it out on stage live, like as part of your performance over three years of touring, because you guys toured relentlessly in this period, right? New York all the time and Boston and Philly. Playing some legendary clubs like the Ratskeller and Max's Kansas City. And, and we went in 19. I'm, I'm getting off track. I, usually I follow up. An arc. But anyway, all this music that came out of Detroit, let's put it that way. All the Motown stuff gave the romantics, its melody, its groove, its beat, the energy and attitude of the city, the dirty, grimy. At that time, Detroit was 24 hours a day building cars. Uh, I don't think there were many women working there. And I think black folks were probably doing more menial jobs there at the time. That's the way it was. And it's not right. And that's why the riots happened, because a lot of that kind of stuff going on in Detroit in 1967. But the music was and the entertainment of the city was uh, integral. And it was part of what the city's made of. And it was more multicultural, I get the sense. I mean... You know, Motown crossed over to the white crowd and the white crowd crossed over into... And the working and class. And the working class, people were coming from everywhere to work in uh, Detroit, you know, largest uh, city for, uh, for for all kinds, everywhere, for all, all kinds of uh, nationalities came, coming into Detroit. The Melody's classic. I think your music at this point is three chords. <laughs> Most of the time. But no one plays three chords the way the romantics play the three chords. I read this somewhere. It's like, yeah, you can talk about a song being three chords, but the way that you guys do three chords is really, really unique in the best way possible. <laughs> yeah, that's from listening to Pete Thompson play three chords and listen to all the other stuff that came before. You know, Eddie Cochran. Eddie Cochran was three chords. Buddy Holly was three chords. Uh, Ricky Nelson was three or four chords. But they sound great when you put them together the way you put them together. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's this arm right here. <laughs> and that's, that was Jimmy's, you know, left hand and his foot. <laughs> but I'm still doing that with guys. I'll have a guy come in, a drummer, Brad Elvis, who works with us now. He does a lot of my stuff. I do the solo stuff. He knows exactly what beats I need to hear, you know, when I'm playing a rhythm and that. He, he, the drummers I've used, they know. It's got the backbeat and it's got a swing. It's usually got a swing to it like Ringo. It's not just straight robotic. It's got a lust to it. It's got a... A lust. I love that. I never heard that before, but the, the backbeat has a lust to yeah, it. Yeah, it does. It draws you in. It, it uh, excites you and it amplifies your senses, you know? Well, you know, what I like about you is a sort of lustful statement 
And when did that come about it? You know, you're still like doing this vocal ease on stage with Jimmy. Jimmy's singing. And then you got what I like about you. And then he's, uh, then he's just, uh, he had the title. I had the music and, and you're playing it off the audiences. A lot of your songs do talk about like the guy chasing the girl. And this is sort of in that realm, but you know, a true classic of the guy chasing the girl. And it's what I like about you and all the things he likes about her. And so when did it all come together around the lyrics so that you're ready to cut it? Like, did it morph as you're on the road and you're experimenting with stuff? And like, I asked this question to every songwriter. When do you know a song is done? And like, this is one that you did it, you recorded it, and it's less than three minutes of hit music. You have to remember our packaging, our formula was the one formula that was coming up before us and that we were coming out in front of was all this progressive music that the songs were long drawn out guitar solo. Yes. Kansas sticks, all that FM radio stuff that took over in the late seventies. It wasn't humble pie where it was rhythm and blues. It wasn't small faces with and without Rod Stewart. It had become this, Long drawn out things. This is Led Zeppelin. We, I grew up on this stuff. I learned how to play all that on that, you know, Led Zeppelin, all that stuff came out in 1968. Our heart, our soul was in the stuff before that, the psychedelic stuff coming out of Pink Floyd, the first two albums, The Move, which uh, became ELO. Sure, all the influences. Yeah, yeah the, uh, the Pretty Things, Rolling Stones. The Flaming Groupies you mentioned once. I had flaming to look groovies, them up. Groovies. <laughs> the Flaming Groupies. From right. San Francisco. That's another story that goes with one of the songs. But so there's this whole like scene, the mod scene happened and in, 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 the Beatlemania scene happened. Then the blues scene was happening. Then the mod scene was happening. Then it became a psychedelic scene. This was all in England and it was spreading around the world. I mean, it was on the West Coast, California. That's where we were. We were the kinks and the kinks thing and the Beatles. So that's why it was a simple song, simple melody, simple subject matter. And just like Rick Nelson and Buddy Holly, we were taking all the bands were doing these long, stretched out, enormous songs. Yes, they had an album with four albums once, four records. Um, and we were still digging, and, and we're digging, and MC5 were coming out and digging the Stooges, you know, and no one in, in the U.S. was ready for that, and they still aren't. They won't even put the MC5 on the Hall of Fame. So they were too radical. Detroit was uh, animalistic in a lot of ways. You guys were this response to that progressive rock thing. I think the Ramones in New York and Blondie who were, and, you know, also had this sort of two and a half minute song, heavily structured thing. And the Sex Pistols were doing it in England at the same, and the Clash was doing it in England. And, and you were like part of this Detroit crowd that moved to New York and tapped into it and cut the song. What I like about you. Well, we were, Totally Detroit. We're totally about Detroit. But we were pulling in all this stuff. We were all feeling the same thing at the same time in LA, in New York, in London, and in cities around the US. And Detroit one, being one of them was a change in uh, shorter songs, melodies, banging your songs out, banging out, even the punk thing. And there's a lot of bands that, that didn't go farther than a few records that were great bands out of Boston. Well, I think there was a band, The Third Rail, and The Real Kids out of Boston. I'd have to go back and look at my list, but there's... Well, obviously the cars made it, you know, to the big time out of that scene. But. Right. Uh, but there was tons of bands coming out of uh, Philly and uh, LA, The Nerves. 
who only reached uh, one album and then it was Paul Collins and then the beat and all that. And, uh, God, you guys had your ears open to everything, you know, interesting. Yeah. And then in San Francisco, you know, had crime, you had crime and you had X and you had all that stuff was happening. What opened my eyes that we could do it too was the whole idea of shorter songs, the punk scene, and then the jam, the way they looked with their mod look again in 1980, 1977, 78. And then the Flame and Groovies brought out, um, it was looked like a Beatles record. It sounded like a Beatles record. Dave Edmonds produced it. So you guys went with the red leather look and the or the pink leather. And I read that you did that because they were throwing bottles and other stuff at you and it was easier to clean. <laughs> is there any truth to that? Or is it just, you like the leather look? It was some combination of the two. Well, it's, it's not quite that, but yeah, it's close. You have to, that's a matter of five years apart, but uh, uh, four or five years apart. We started with uh, resale shop clothes from Salvation Army. Stuff with skinny uh, lapels, skinny ties, small collared shirts, peg leg pants, and beetle boots. And those things, by the time we finished the show, were all tattered and wet and falling apart because they were 1950s, 1960s, and they were iridescent suits, you know, they'd shine different colors, and they fall apart. Well, you break a sweat in your show. I mean, back then, and you still do, right? It's still a workout. We got into the music so much that, I mean, just playing, we were drenched. We were drenched, and the clothes were falling apart. And we needed something stronger, so we went to vinyl. So around 77, 1978, we had someone that we knew, and they sold red vinyl, white vinyl, black vinyl, black vinyl with white polka dots, with jackets. You know, we were totally in Roxy Music kind of thing. They Roxy Music really had a great look, great look, Grind Fairy, you know, Bowie and all the glitter. So we weren't afraid in the clubs to come out in vinyl and black vinyl, pink vinyl, red vinyl. And we did it. I mean, it was just mainly for the durability. But then when we got signed, we had some money. So we said, let's do something like Motown, get suits made, but let's do something that's more rock. So it was vinyl and leather. So the leather, we had a girl that we knew that sold leather. She did stuff for the uh, Funkadelic, George Clinton and the folks that worked with him. So we designed, we figured suits like uh, Motown, short jackets, kind of looked the same cut because in the sixties you could get leather jackets of different colors and we were just took it to the next length. You get green and red and blue and, you know, walking around Detroit, you would have a little red leather suit coat, you know, in the sixties. But uh, people were really into clothes back then in the sixties, walking down the street, just going shopping back then. We took that mantle and that's what we felt, flew with. We flew with the leather. But unfortunately I, was the rebel in me, the loudmouth and the guy with the spark and the the attitude. I didn't want to do that every record. I and I didn't want to look like I also wanted that punk raw raw attitude in there too. It didn't have to have I didn't want it to be just clean and sharp. It had to have that torn shirt here and there, beat up boots, you know, raw hair, messed up hair. So You never did the mohawk or the or the like piercing of the cheek or anything. No, we didn't get that far, but we had the energy and the attitude of the MC5. definitely had the energy and the attitude. And and you guys broke a sweat on stage, and I imagine you still still do in your your shows. Um, Well, when you come up with easy easy songs like What I Like About You, it's easy to move around the stage and do things and, you know, 
perform. And get the audience fired up, which is what happens at your shows and did happen then, right? Like on fire. Do you remember what was the best places where the crowd just lit up? Do you remember? Everywhere was really good. I mean, because... Australia loved you people. Like you guys were huge in Australia. Number one, what I like about you and the record, uh, Japan and in France, Germany, Holland, Holland, what I like about you went up, was climbing in the charts before we did the video. They called us up to do the video. Canada went to number one. Yeah, it was, it was, it was working. It wasn't in the charts though. In Billboard charts, it went to 47, 48, 49. Yeah, it was the third single off the first record. We spent three years on the road, going everywhere. We got signed by Nat Weiss, Emperor Records, new label. It was a custom label, independent label of Epic Portrait, which is a custom label of Epic, CBS. So we were a custom of a custom, uh, independent of an independent. You couldn't get more independent. They latched onto the three songs, tell it to carry, uh, When I Look in Your Eyes and What I Like About You. And they all reached the top 100. What I like about you was number 47 and fell off, the, started falling off the charts. The management went and talked to the label. They came back and told us they want us to do another record. And we just put out the first record. We toured the United States on the first record. We played with Cheap Trick. We played with uh, ZZ Top somewhere in Ted Nugent in El Paso, Texas. We played uh, intermittent shows with Talking Heads and, you know, whoever was out at the time. The poli- we did the police tour. Just before the record came out, our record came out, we police were playing small 100-seat clubs like we were. We were racing to Toronto, you know, down the Queens Highway. You know, they got stopped. We didn't, you know, we're laughing. <laughs> You're waving at Sting as he's pulled over by a cop and Andy Summer. <laughs> That's so funny. Pretty much. You did this first record and the label, you're having this big success. So the label's putting the pressure on you to give him more of the same, perhaps, or... You know, get out another record right away. Yeah, another or- record. You need new songs. Well, wait a minute. We haven't conquered the world yet. We haven't we haven't gone to London. We haven't gone to England, you know. But we followed what the management wanted us to do. And we had spent, you know, three, four years writing the songs for the first record. Now we had to come up. Okay, the first Romantics record came out in 80, the first album of the 80s, I guess. It was. It, it was released on January 4th in, in 1980 in the UK, and it was the first album released in the decade. Yeah, I, I was just reminded of that. I forgot totally about that. But uh, it came out, and it was uh, slowly dipping off the charts. And they didn't, I don't know why they didn't put out a fourth song, or we should have jumped on the tour right, right to Europe, right to England. We we were, it was picking up on steam there. We're playing the Whiskey of Go-Go, and we got a call that the record is climbing the charts in Europe, in Holland. They wanted to come over and film us for a video. So two guys came over with one camera, cool dudes, and came over. They came over to Whiskey of Go-Go. We're playing, first time playing with the Whiskey, which is, you know, big, big time for us. Yeah. They came into our sound check. They wanted to do What I Like About You, and I think When I Look in Your Eyes, maybe. We wanted to look like Big faces, big right on the mic. We wanted to look like a little bit like a raw version of uh, Hard Day's Night kind of thing. More attitude. So they filmed close. They filmed from uh, 20 feet away and then way out in the audience. And they did it like in 20 minutes. And we're done, you know. It didn't cost anything. I mean, years later, we're spending $40,000 on videos or more. 
and yeah, definitely more. And um, that was it. That took off. That's and it was the perfect vibe for the song being black and white. We wanted it black and white ish, red, black and white, and uh, red shirts. Did that become the MTV? video yeah because they were still doing videos in europe i mean they still had an mtv video badly and was just launching at the time it wasn't even there yet yep it was going to europe the video was going to europe it went to it was in holland and london and and, and australia and japan so all those countries still had the tv shows where they played videos it took off it went to number one in those countries and they came back to us and next thing you know next the next year i think it was the next year the end of the year, uh, MTV started. So then it jumped on that. And that's what really kicked it in into the vibe. It wasn't a number one hit in, in the U.S. It wasn't number one in, on Billboard. It didn't have, like My Sharona, it didn't have magazines paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to pr- play My Sharona, By the Neck, you know, on Billboard, whatever, all these newspapers, all the, everywhere. It didn't have the, the big label promotion behind it. We didn't have that. We were on the road, on the road, on the road. We love the neck. That's not the point. The point is we were a working class band. That's what the point is. And uh, With great music, with a great hook and a great song. And at least one great song. <laughs> More than that. <laughs> right? And a great act to watch. I mean, the energy of these shows is legendary. I mean, you had to wear leather suits because you wore them out. You sweated through the other There's no band... <laughs> Like the five and like James Brown, like it was a show and we were still into a show and a lot of bands were, it, it wasn't really about that too much. We, we still had that Motowny kind of, we made it, wanted to make sure we were, all, someone was always singing, a different person was always singing. We wanted to make sure we were moving around on stage and not greeting, but involving with the audience, bring them into it. And it had to be songs that were short and, they could go home and they'd walk out in the parking lot to the car. They could sing the song. They could remember the, the chorus. Now, how hard is that? I mean, you see bands now with five guys and no one sings. No one sings backup. I don't want to give anyone any ideas because that's a great formula. <laughs> They've been copying you for years. No, 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 no. It's just it was our formula. It was our formula. The second record, you take a hiatus of sorts like you leave the band they cut a record that i was fired no i was fired you were fired and then they bring you back you co-write talking in your sleep which is the second biggest hit well first we were we were in that whiskey go-go thing and then we got it we were going either touring england london or we're going to australia we went to australia we had just recorded the second record national breakout i had to come up with ideas for songs, new songs that I didn't even know what it was going to be. And none of us did. And we worked together. But usually I would come up with like a guitar part or a thing, an idea and say, here, you know, and we gel it and we'd have an album. It was actually, I think, kind of traumatic having to go back in the studio and come up with brand new stuff. It wasn't conducive to really good uh, vibes within the whole organization. And then we went to Australia. The songs were brand new. We rehearsed for three, four weeks, went to Australia, and I wasn't playing them exactly like I should have. I thought I could go on and just kind of wing it. And I was it wasn't the best. I mean, it was okay. The show was good. Came back, and there was a bunch of attitudes. And I always had a way to rub the management about royalties, and they didn't care for that too much. And so I was gone. They did a record that didn't 
have the sound of the romantics because it didn't have my guitar parts, my guitar sound and the ideas, the same type of ideas. It didn't really show up. And so uh, I wasn't really playing. I was hearing a lot of new music coming out of uh, London was the new romance, new romantic bands, Duran Duran, Spando Ballet, Ultravox was around before that, but all these new dance sounding bands. Production got more uh, emphasis. There was the production of music jumped a hundred percent because in the, in the punk days, it was just raw, good in the studio, bang it out is raw, the raw the better. Now you're coming back to a whole different thing. So I got a call that they wanted me to come back. They were going to either get me back or get someone to write songs that they want. Someone's going to hire somebody to write songs. So a songwriter to work with the group. So they called me and then I, I agreed and went back in the band. And after their third record, which was without me, the fourth record was in heat. That's one. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.